Ever wish there was a fast way to get up to speed on a complicated topic? Well, you're in luck. This series might just be for you. As providers, it's hard to stay on top of all the specialties in a multi-specialty world. So join us for the month of October and get back in the loop about everything that's happening in cochlear implants, from the fundamentals to what's changing with candidacy, patient characteristics, and the latest in tech. And you're going to hear it from the best of the best. Hit the subscribe button and be the first to know when an episode drops for this Medod Pro Doc Talk special series podcast on cochlear implants, sponsored by Envoy Medical. Hi, and welcome to Medod Pro Doc Talk, our special series on cochlear implants. We are back again today, Camille, making it happen. Moving right into this next a good day to do that. Yeah, right into this next group of of episodes about candidacy. And we are excited to have our special guest joining us today, Terry Zolan, Dr. Terry Zolan. Welcome. Hi, it's so nice to be here. We are excited to have you. You have been in the field for over 30 years, and your career has been so impactful in the field of cochlear implants. It went by really fast. Um making, saving it's 30 years makes it (laughs) sounds like a really long time, but it's, it's flown by, but time flies when you're having fun. Um, The field is amazing. I, if I had a crystal ball and looked ahead, I never would have imagined how great the outcomes are today for children, for adults and the technology and how useful and helpful and life-changing it is. And I look back and I'm just feel so fortunate that I've been in this field and been able to watch it and be part of it all of the transition has really been exciting to be be a part of. Was there a moment or a person or something that really sparked you know, your interest in this aspect of audiology? It's, it's funny you ask that because um, I was actually an undergrad at Purdue University and saw a video about um, the Medel Vienna device. And I was sold. And then I got to grad school and I told people I want to do implants. And they were like, we don't do those here. And then people (laughs) were like, you don't want to work with those. Those things won't work. And uh, because it was before the first clinical trial. And I just kept pushing along and plodding along. And um, the more I got into it, the more I knew I loved it. And I was just in the right place at the right time with my career because my career was starting when implants were starting. And so I feel fortunate about that. So I would say that it was that. It was the the video about uh, the Vienna extracochlear device that I saw back in the 1980s. Who would have thought? There's always just some one random moment where you're like, wow, changes the life and changes so many more lives and an entire field. So like you said, Camille, the work that, I mean, truly, Terry, the work you've done is iconic. It really has changed the industry. And we're talking about kicking off this group of episodes on candidacy, making this referral such an easier, simpler process. Well, you know, um, it's interesting because we developed the 6060 because we would go to meetings and we would talk about cochlear implants and people would say, so how do I know when I should refer someone? Exactly. Right. And you never know what to say. Right. You'd say, well, I think when they're around this, if they're moderate to profound, but we were seeing people in the clinic that fell outside that, that were candidates. 
we decided to really look at our data and we had about 529 patients that we looked at and we developed the the 6060 and really the 6060 is very easy because it utilizes just a basic audiogram that clinicians do um, in their clinic every day. If you test it live voice, monitor live voice, whatever test you use, but if their unaided word recognition is less than 60%, we found that close to actually over 90% of our candidates met those two criteria. And so it's a, a pretty confident thing that yes, they're gonna be a candidate, Plus, we based candidacy at that time on a sentence score in a plus 10 signal-to-noise ratio. And we know a lot of clinics are using a harder signal-to-noise ratio now. So it's a fairly strict guideline. And I know a lot of clinicians say, I don't want to send someone three hours down the road for an implanted valve if they're not a candidate. That right. person might be mad at me and they might say, you know, why'd you send me there? Um and what I say to that is typically patients are happy, even if they're not a candidate, to get the information they get in the appointment. They're in the network. They'll probably go back a year later. But the 6060 just made it easy because there's no special tests. It's just looking at the audiogram that you're doing, the unaided word rec, the pure tone average, and, and figuring that out. Because a lot of insurers look at the best dated performance, we base that on the best unaided ear for the pure tone average uh, in that word rec score. But now with asymmetric hearing loss and SSD, you could actually look at one ear as a candidate yeah. and consider referring. I can see, uh, Camille, you you probably agree with me on, on that one. I, I do. And I've been a big proponent of looking at the ear we're going to implant because of the recent changes in guidelines. You know, we have FDA approval now for single-sided deafness. And so I think there are patients, certainly within the single-sided deafness realm, that we can implant, enables more patients to come in. We know that, and that's okay, um, but you know, clinics will be able to guide whether or not that patient should come in, and, and that's kind of what we do at our center. We get referrals from different clinics throughout you know, our region, and we kind of scan through it. We look at their insurance. And if we think, yeah, they should be brought in, we should give them some more information. That's great. Or, you know what, they have this type of insurance. I know they we can't get that covered for their because of their insurance. Take the time to call that patient, explain to them what the scenario is, and try to take the burden off that referring outlet because we don't want to stunned them from referring it. We can call and explain it to them and, and talk to them and let them know why this patient wasn't a candidate. But I agree with you. I think you have made a referral pattern tangible for clinicians who aren't completely immersed into the cochlear implant field. And I think that that's been really needed because you're exactly right, Terry. You know, we you don't go to a cochlear implant conference or speak with other audiologists, even at like state conferences or at meetings or see them, you know, in Costco for that matter and talk to them about what you're doing. It's hard for them to keep up on all of this as, as well as in the reverse, for me to be able to keep up on all the hearing aid technology and all the advances on that side of it, I can't keep up with that. So if we can help each other um, making sure that our patients 
get diverted to the best rehabilitation outcomes, I think that that's, that's the duty of all of us. And that's what we want to do. Absolutely. And I think it just simplifies it. It makes it more like a continuum of care rather yeah. than all of us in our individual silos. It's not a last resort. It's the next best step. And I think it brings, you know, the the hearing aid audiologist, the hearing aid dispensers more into the mix of that continuum of care. We see so many patients are bimodal wearing a hearing aid on one ear, implant on the other. And so we still need the expertise of those clinicians who've managed the needs of those patients for so many years. And I love that it gives us an opportunity to partner with them rather than, than being separate from them and gives us an opportunity to learn from them them to learn from us. We're still specialized and, and we still have our areas of expertise, but really gives us an opportunity to interface between those, those two groups. And I hope that it answers the question of when to refer because they don't do sentence testing and that's how we determine candidacy. So we couldn't say, put them in the booth and do sentences. We wanted to really figure out um, how to base it on something that they're doing anyways. So if I, as a provider, recognize that I have a patient that has a PTA that's greater than 60 dB and I have unaided word recognition that's worse than 60%. And I am talking to my patient, they've been in hearing aids for a certain period of time. They're not doing great. This is what's happening with their hearing. And I'm referring them in for a cochlear implant evaluation. What should I be telling them to expect? What is the conversation? What is the type of information that I should be providing to the patient to say, okay, now we're going to refer you out to the University of Iowa. And when you go there, you are going to see the audiologist. I'm an audiologist and they're going to do other audiology things. And you're going to see the ENT and you're here with my ENT but they're going to do other ENT things. So how do you have that conversation? It's easy to say, hey, they're specialists in just this, but it's nice to be also able to give them additional information in regards to the robustness of what the evaluation is going to be looking for. And also not to set up unrealistic expectations that this is going to be the end all answer to all of the challenges that they're having. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked that because Honestly, that conversation is the key to getting those patients in the door to be considering a cochlear implant. I I think that audiologists really underestimate how much pull they have or how much say they have and if a patient is willing to go consider that next step. So when when people ask me this question, I usually think, okay, and give them information to empower them. Don't call it a last resort, call it a next best step. Talk to them about outcomes that they'll do similar tests that they've done with their hearing aids. They'll be able to check their hearing aids and make sure that they're optimal for the patient. It's usually covered by insurance. The appointment is usually covered by insurance because we know a lot of people are concerned about that. Well, if I go there, is that gonna be covered? It's typically covered, Medicare, other insurers. Cochlear implants are typically covered by Medicare and other insurers. So that's important for for people to inform uh, patients about. And really, I think the key is to let them know that this is an evaluation. It's not saying you have to do this. 
even if they're a candidate, it's really up to them. It's going to be their decision. And really, we make the best decision when we're fully educated. And so that step is becoming fully educated so that they can make an educated decision about their hearing health care. Do they want to take that next step and improve their hearing? So I think for clinicians, just to take a moment, there's great resources with the implant manufacturers that people can go check out online if they really want information about products. But I think they need a little coaching about these other issues that they won't get anywhere else than from their uh, referring audiologist. And then once they get to the implant program, they'll get that as well. Yeah, one of the things you know, you touched on, and it's something, you know, when we have patients come in, they always want to know, well, why did you do this? One of the things patients always ask about, my hearing aids are working, why are you checking them? And I already did this test, which is their hearing test, or their, we, I already did speech recognition. The thing that the audiologist should know, and be great if they could give the patient another tool in this aspect, is we're not checking their hearing aid because we think the audiologist didn't fit it appropriately, or if we adjust it, it's not because we think the audiologist, again, didn't fit it appropriately. It's because they were probably adjusting it to make sure that the, the patient was going to wear it. You know, sometimes patients have hyperacusis and they can't have things as loud as maybe we would set it according to our targets with real ear or something there's typically an explanation behind it. But because when we are submitting for insurance coverage to the, the payers for this patient, we have to say we did all of these things and crossed all of the boxes off to make sure it gets covered for that patient. So it's really, for us, it's making sure when that patient gets the cochlear implant, if that's the step that they decide they wanna do, that there's no reason that the insurance comes back and say, well, I'm not going to cover this because they didn't make sure your hearing aids were best fit. They didn't make sure, you know, all of these different things. So um, sometimes, and it used to be, have hearing aid audiologists want to know, why did you adjust that, you know, this hearing aid, or why did you have to test that? And it's not because we question their work. It's because we have to do all of these things to make sure candidacy is, is met when we submit that for insurance coverage. That's right, because they require it. It says best dated, and yeah. we have to put a stamp of approval on that, that we've tested it to make sure it's the best dated. Yep. Absolutely. Now, insurance didn't always cover CI or coverage is getting better. I know there's some changes with Medicare that have gone on. Terry, I know one of the things that you hold near and dear to your heart is understanding the billing that goes around it. You're certainly looked at as an expert in our field, and I have looked up to you to, to understand what needs to be billed, how it should be billed, how it's changed from year to year to make sure that we're billing for appropriate um, codes. And, and so if, if you could touch on that, I think that would be really helpful. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, the code that we use a lot with implant care is 92626, the CPT code. And it was recently changed because when they first introduced it, there was all these questions about, oh my gosh, who uses it? When do you use it? And now it's specifically geared towards implantable devices. 
So um, that took it out of sort of the hearing aid realm, and it gave us an ability to use that code preoperatively to evaluate candidacy, as well as postoperatively to evaluate performance. But prior to that code being expanded, we never knew if the time we spent on hearing aid verification, on yeah. selecting and fitting a hearing aid for the eval, could that be covered? But they clarified that those things can now, which is really helpful for us. So um, because it's a time-based code, it covers all the time that we, we spend with patients determining candidacy. So we can roll the time for the uh, unaided audiogram, for the verification, for the fitting with a different hearing aid if it's not best fit. So, um, and then the speech recognition testing that we know involves quite a bit of time. So that has been really helpful. And uh, post-operatively, we can also continue to do those things on the contralateral ear once they have a hearing aid and roll that into that time because it's part of their aided situation with an implantable device because it's now bimodal. That was a big change for us. Terry, one thing, hearing aids, right? So is it okay to use those codes for that hearing aid, even in CMS patients or um, Medicare patients? Great question, because Medicare will not cover testing for the purpose of a hearing aid, but they will cover that testing if it's part of an evaluation for an implantable device. So absolutely, if a patient comes in and we're verifying their hearing aids, or if they've never even had hearing aids, but we're fitting a hearing aid to them for the purpose of determining candidacy, that's absolutely covered by Medicare. And ASHA has some great handouts describing these recent changes to 92626, uh, if anyone wants to sort of learn more about that. Looking at it in different ways. So we, we modified just the way we analyzed the data based on the feedback, and we were so thrilled to, to have it published. And honestly, I'm, I'm surprised that how well it took off, but um, I have a very simple mind and I wanted something simple that could be used for referral sources. And I've been thrilled. Some people have contacted me and said they've programmed their audiometer to alert them when someone has a pure tone average that's greater than 60. And that pure tone average is, you know, just those standard 512. But I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's a great way to have your audiometer flag, hey, this person might be an implant candidate. They might need that next step. Medicare just revised their indications from 40% correct on sentences to 60% correct on sentences. You were involved in that process, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How do you think that's going to change the number of patients we're seeing? What should clinicians do? And Dr. Buckman, that was a question I proposed to him, who was another um, person involved in this process. Um, how, what do you think clinicians should do? You know, For years, we would tell patients, yeah, you're not a candidate yet, but how do we bring them back in? How do we get the word out? We know there's that 60 number again, right? It's like, yeah, it's like the magic number. Um, and one thing is the 60 60 applies to Medicare patients as well, even on the old indication. We, we did test that in, in the research and scores that we're going to see in research papers and everything else are going to be higher because of this, because people will be doing better with implants. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with you. And I, and I think it's timely because. Now there's all this research that's connecting um, audibility and dementia and, you know, those patients that we're talking about with CMS are really at risk for that. And so I'm so happy that we can see these patients sooner and hopefully get them implanted sooner instead of them having to wait. 
Absolutely. It's just, it's such a good thing. I, I commend CMS. It took us a long time to, to get it through, but the end result was, was perfect. Their indications, the only things that change is that number. So there's still a lot of room for clinical judgment and determining candidacy, um, but it's a much better guideline of indication than what we had previously. So yeah, and Terry, just along with that, you know, there's room for clinical judgment. You and I have the last six months have been working on a project together, which I have loved every minute of, um, and that's revising the minimum speech test battery for adult cochlear implant candidacy and post-operative follow-up. How do you think this revision will benefit our clinicians, our clinics? Well, I, I think it's going to be a, a big change because, you know, we've employed that, um, that group of experts and we're doing it in a formal consensus manner so that it's not just a couple of us, a small group of us making decisions. We're really doing it in a systematic way in order to change how we're doing what we're doing um, to make sure that it's really thought out in terms of recommendations. And we've got experts in single-sided deafness and um, electroacoustic stimulation and bimodal and, and traditional. So um, I think it will just give clinicians a better idea of how to use the test materials. It will make it easier for them to access them. We will have some recommendations about referrals. So I think it, it kind of unites that continuum. It doesn't keep us separate. It's putting us closer in, Susan, like you've mentioned, with how do we communicate better with each other? And I think the revised MSTB will help us do that in a better way than we've been able to do it in the past. And, and we've touched on it, you know, before in, in some of the other podcasts and a little bit in this one, everybody does things a little bit differently. And, you know, what that does is creates a lot of variability in outcomes. And so I think one of the things that I will be proud of with this revised MSTB is the guidance that was kind of lacking in some of the older versions of the MSTB is that we are really trying to give guidelines on how to test your patients, be newer to the field or may not be newer, that just want to, to make sure that they're doing the same thing that clinic next door is doing and candidacy will be the same for clinic next door as it is here or follow-up care. And I think that's something that our field has really needed. And uh, in the end, it's going to be something we all can be proud of putting out there and, and um, providing for our field. Absolutely. And that, that guidance is needed. And I think probably the biggest missed group are those traditional candidates that moderate to profound, because those are the ones that hearing aid dispensers, hearing aid audiologists are going, oh, are they an implant or are they hearing aid? And so I think that's where that 60-60 comes in. And then people can hopefully use the revised MSTB to give them a really good eval and make the right decision uh, for these these patients that we're missing. SSD is easy to identify, right? You've got a deaf ear, you've got a normal ear. Asymmetric is even a little bit easier, but um, it's those bilateral monitor profounds that are on the borderline that you're not sure about. Um, and I'm really hopeful that the 6060 makes that group easier to decide. And remember, it's it's kind of a stringent one. So you can step outside that. You could expand it out to you know 55 or whatever, but um, based on our data, we feel it's a really comfortable referral level where it's highly likely that someone will qualify for an implant. But even with the single-sided deafness, taking away the candidacy and the identification of it, 
I remember when we implanted our first single-sided deafened patient at Iowa, we went to test them for follow-up care. And it was like, oh, these are really different patients. Like we do everything through sound field with our traditional or even our EAS patients. We might plug a contralateral ear or muffet. But how do we isolate these patients who have single-sided deafness? You know, that's a whole different game. And so I think having protocols that outline the best way to do that is going to be really helpful for clinicians because it's a scary feeling when you have that patient sitting there and you realize at that moment, wow, they're different than that last patient that I saw. What do I do different? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I love about the approval for SSD and asymmetrics is finally the FDA recognized that an implant is treatable in one ear. You don't have to look at the best aided. Um, if we're implanting a deaf ear with a normal contralateral ear, that tells us we can treat the ear that needs to be treated. And that's where I think we went wrong 35 years ago was we should not ever have really depended on the contralateral ear hearing and made it so that these people were really bad off in both ears. Finally, maybe making up for that, but we've still got a long way to go because we're we're seeing people with so many benefits uh, from the implant. So I would encourage people that are referring to think about the ear to be treated and not necessarily the best aided or that contralateral ear. Great point. Uh, well, you, you know I like that. <laughs> yes, I, I do know that. Well, today, thank you so much for everything today. This has been this is chock full of great information. <laughs> what, what a way to kick off a candidacy, our candidacy episodes, so much information and simple information, which I think is really appreciated. And the detailed information also really speaks to everyone because you have such a nice way of building up to it to help us all get our arms around it for those of us that are not CI audiologists or work in those clinics. So we I appreciate, appreciate the both of you. Camille, I always learn something from you listening to you talk and chat it up with our guests. We, we've had a great conversation today. The American Cochlear Implant Alliance, which we had Donna Sorkin on, and she had mentioned in her podcast that the alliance has developed task forces where they're so if you do want more information, if you do want some detailed information, you can go on their website and um, look up those task force papers and get more information as well. Absolutely. The 6060 is really primarily adults or older children. So the ACIA does have um, great guidelines for children. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today with us. And Camille, as always, thanks for being such a great co-host and I look forward to seeing you both in November at the Florida Combined Otolaryngology Meeting where, where all of this will we'll really get to deep dive into this with a larger audience in, in person, which will be great. So everybody take care and thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this special series of Doc Talk by Medod Pro sponsored by Envoy Medical.